Welcome to the Starting With One podcast, Success Leaves Clues series with Robin Bailey and Al McDonald. Have you ever wondered what makes someone successful? What are they doing that is different? How do they achieve greatness? We believe that success leaves clues. In this series, we are interviewing very successful people from different walks of life to hear their stories. We'd like to remind our listeners that the views expressed in this podcast are those of our guests and not necessarily those shared by our hosts. Welcome back to the Starting With One podcast, Success Leaves Clues series. Today's episode is sponsored by Life and Legacy Advisory Group. We believe sound financial advice improves people's lives. We are also brought to you by ARIA Benefits. We believe well-designed employee benefit programs enhance people's lives. I'm your host, Robin Bailey, as always here with my co-host and business partner, Al McDonald. Al, happy Friday. How's your day going? Well, thank you, Robin. It's going well, and I'm looking forward to this podcast because, and I won't steal your thunder, I won't steal your introduction, but we do this and we've done it a lot, but we're still probably amateurs at it. And I think we're talking to a pro today. So hopefully we will be able to learn a little bit. A hundred percent. Really selfishly, I was looking forward to this one. And so joining us today is Fatima Zaidi. Did I say your name correctly? Yes, you did. You did. All like right. So, Chief Executive Officer of Quill, which is a podcasting platform that offers an end to end solution for any type of podcaster. Welcome to the show, Fatima. Thank you. That was quite an intro, and it's a pleasure to be here. We're very excited to have you because, again, I, I hope we can learn a lot, and, and I hope our listeners can learn a lot from this episode as well. But I got to thank Aaron Burry over at Willful. Uh, one of the greatest things that Al and I enjoy about the podcast is the reach it gives us and the people that we get to chat with. And Aaron was certainly a pleasure to talk with. And we asked her, I said, who else do you know that would be a great fit doing great things out there for the podcast? And of course, she made an introduction to you. So glad that we've met and connected and uh, really excited about starting. So are you ready to jump into it? Definitely. And shout out to Erin for always connecting people. She's really great at that. Yeah, she certainly is. So let's start at the beginning, Fatima. Tell us about Quill. You know, as podcasters ourselves, of course, we're really interested in what you're doing. So Quill is actually the byproduct of years of me running 88 with Erin, which is a previous agency that I was a part of where I led sales and she was a managing director. And one of the biggest trends and requests we started seeing were a lot of our corporate enterprise teams moving into the podcasting industry. And it made sense for a variety of reasons. I think it was a very new medium that was starting to explode with exponential growth. The audience was educated, affluent millennial professionals that, you know, typically account for 80% of the workforce. And millennials are typically actively engaged in other activity while listening to podcasts, which is a tactic that isn't available to other advertisers. You can't be driving to work and watching Netflix. You can't be doing your dishes and also reading an article. So it was just a very unique form of advertising. And I got to thinking towards our, our last days at 88 that there is something definitely here. And so right before the pandemic, I launched Quill, which is the world's first marketplace and agency for podcasters. We work with corporate teams like SickKids, RBC, TD, PwC, all of the Fortune 500 companies to create their branded podcasts. But we also have a solution for indie podcasters who are also looking to launch a really great show on an affordable price point. So think of our marketplace as the Upwork or Five of the podcasting world. Very cool. And, and you touched on something that I've believed in for a long time. 
I've always been drawn to podcasts, even before we were doing our own show, because you're so right. You're going for a walk outside. You can listen to a podcast and learn something. You're driving to the office. You can, you know, you can listen to music if that's your thing. I'm a lifelong learner. I like to learn things. I like to hear different opinions. So listening to podcasts, I mean, it's something that you can do anywhere. And, it, and it's one of the reasons why I wanted to jump into this. And it's funny. And we were chatting offline when we first met. I had no idea what I was doing. I just knew I wanted to do it. And it's funny when you go back and you listen to, not that it's perfect now by any stretch, and I'm sure you can give us some tips, but when you go back and you listen to the ones you did, you're almost horrified at listening to your voice because other people have said, well, I can't tell you didn't know what you're doing, but I guess we're always our toughest critics. I was just going to say that we're our harshest critics. <laughs> exactly. So, oh, that's very cool. Edison actually did a report last year where they found that 94% of people who start a podcast will end up listening to the entire episode and show. When you compare that with video content, a 30-minute video only has a 12% completion rate. So try to keep that in mind the next time you're wondering if you're doing a good job. There's a 94% chance stat that somebody will listen all the way through to the end of your content. Interesting. Okay. That is interesting. Hey, so I've got a list here of things that you have been awarded. It's a pretty impressive. So I want to, I want to ask you about it. Top 30 under 30 marketer and sales developer, young professional of the year, and one of Flair's magazine's top 100 Canadian women. That's a pretty impressive list, but tell me what would you say are maybe two or three of the top things you would tell every small business as it relates to sales and marketing? I mean, I would say the first is that being in sales and also being an entrepreneur is an emotional roller coaster. There's days you're on top of the world, there's days you hit rock bottom. And I think that, you know, with the constant nose and the door slammed in our face and the rejection that we face on a daily basis, I think that oftentimes people can have an inability to keep putting themselves out there. And I find that good salespeople and resilient entrepreneurs never take that rejection personally. And they know that getting their ducks in a row take way more work than commanding them to line up. And so my advice to small businesses always is when you're hiring a salesperson or any employee during the early stages of your company, look for people who have resilience, grit, and hustle. Those skills matter much more than the fancy resume with the bells and whistles. And then the second advice I would give is, this is a little bit more directed towards women in our industry. I find when I often look at my network that women are afraid of being too opinionated, too promotional, too assertive, and often fail to take credit for their own ideas. And I think when it comes to personal branding, you can only be your own advocates. And so you just read those list of awards and I will absolutely take credit for those awards because if we are not going to advocate for ourselves, who will? And we are essentially CEOs of our own personal brand. Great advice. And congratulations, by the way, on those awards, because they're impressive and definitely that's a good message to, to get out there to everyone. And you bring up a good point. And it was something that I, would, I was hoping to get to. I mean, You've built your own business in addition to helping others build their brand along the way. And you've already touched on it a little bit. I'd like to expand on it. In your opinion, what's the number one priority for female entrepreneurs? What should they be focusing on, Fadima? I think when it comes to raising capital, I think the stats last year was the average deal size for a female-led company was $5 million, and the average deal size for a male-led company was $12 million, so more than double. And so there is a clear disparity in access to capital. And I think that one of the reasons that there is that disparity is that women, and especially women of color, fall under one of two categories. Either we're some sort of a charity quota that people are looking to fill for some like minimal funding pool that really doesn't really make that much of a difference on your bottom line. Or two, we just don't 
look or sound or constitute as what a successful entrepreneur typically looks like or sounds like. So we get boxed into this other category. So I think there are a lot of preconceived notions when it comes to investors and the stats sort of speak for itself. So I think it really comes down to the advice that I would give female identifying led companies is that if you are looking to raise capital, really do your due diligence and look for organizations and VC firms and angel investors that have already invested in women and have a history and pipeline of doing so. Keep them as accountable as just as you need capital, they also need deal flow. And so this is a two-way relationship and partnership. And there's a lot of resources that I use to tap into information like that. Crunchbase is one of them. And typically I want to see how many female partners are on the exec board of a fund that I am pitching to. I decided to actually bootstrap oil. We have a really interesting and funny COVID story, which maybe we'll get to later, that ended up meaning that we didn't need to raise capital. But I know that for a technology company during the early stages, we need an influx of cash and there are not a lot of resources right now to support us. It's interesting. I was on a clubhouse meeting for entrepreneurs over last week uh, on the weekend. And one of the ladies that had come up to the stage, she was a CEO of a firm and I'm not sure what industry. And her question to the panel, men and women, was how does a woman entrepreneur and, and CEO find their voice? Because there seems to be, and traditionally there's been different rules. I mean, if a man is aggressive and forward charging, he's a real leader. Mm-hmm. If a woman is doing the same, she's viewed quite differently. So it's interesting mm-hmm. to hear. Yeah, definitely. I think this is um, a challenge that we have faced constantly. And I think that is another reason why I always tell people that they need to keep advocating for themselves and their personal brands because nobody else is going to do it for them. Yeah, that's right. right. So tell me a little bit about when you're off the clock and you're not working hard doing what you're doing. What are your indulgences? What do you spend your, your free time at? Well, obviously podcasts. So could I say anything else? I, I am a huge podcast consumer and I have been since 2014 when Serial became a household name. I consume on average of 10 shows a week and the roster is quite diverse. Everything from self-help podcasts, business, marketing, but the Bachelor Nation podcast, the murder mysteries, pretty much everything and anything you can think of, I've probably listened to it. Quill also does Quill Reviews, which is essentially the Rotten Tomatoes of podcasting. And so I get really great recommendations and crowdsource reviews from other podcast consumers and lovers out there. And so I have a constant Rolodex of new shows that I'm tuning into. Even when you're on your own time, you're still working. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, that's the thing, right? When you love what you do, it doesn't necessarily feel like work, which is actually a lie. When I'm working at Quill, it definitely feels like work most days. I'm so glad it's Friday, but consuming podcasts is just like a a really great joy of mine. And I've always said this, I I said this long before podcasting was a thing that everybody consumes content in different ways. Some people are more visual prefer like transcripts and reading articles. Some people are more audio. And I think that before podcasting, there really wasn't a, a mode of content or ways that you could communicate with someone based on their audio learning style other than radio which is more real time that's actually how I learn the best I'm not a visual person I was never good in the classroom lecture setting I'm not a huge tv person either shocking I know as a millennial um, not a huge Netflix consumer but I do consume a lot of podcast shows because audio is my form of content 
And it's so easy to consume as well. And, I, and I'm like you, Fatim. I've been an early adopter to this format and listening to podcasts. And I'll give you two examples. I mean, and again, how easy it is to consume. I'll put an earbud in while I'm barbecuing on a Sunday <laughs> night because I'm preparing all my meals for the following week because you know, we're busy during the week and I'll listen to it. And then the only reason I have satellite radio in my car is for my wife. Because 100% of the time in my car, I am listening to, like you, I, I subscribe to eight or nine shows and I'm desperately trying to get them in when I work out later on today for that hour and hour and a half, you know, sitting on my iPhone will be one of those shows that I listen to. And sometimes it's for pleasure and entertainment and other times it's, I want to learn something, right? Mm -hmm. There's, and there's some people in my industry that run podcasts as well. And I certainly want to learn those. So I'm hoping that those people out there consuming, you know, at least a portion of them are actually consuming ours and, and, and enjoying what we're, we're presenting as well. Because I think there is, you know, what you're, you've already presented here today is very interesting, I think. And I think it's very inspiring for other young entrepreneurs. So I want to get back to the business for a second, because I think, you know, you have a lot to share, especially with other up and coming entrepreneurs. What's something small that you've done that's made a big difference for your success? So interestingly enough, I'm going to bring this back to Erin. Erin and I go way, way back, even before 88. She is a family friend of mine and really good friends with my sister. And one day when I was just fresh out of university, I was looking for a job and having a really hard time finding my first job. And Erin gave me a piece of advice, which it's funny because I think her mom gave her this advice and then she passed it on to me. Moms know best. And her advice was the rule of three, which is do three things every day to keep your network warm, whether it's taking someone out for a cup of coffee, whether it's engaging with someone on social media, whether it's sharing someone's content or articles on your social, just do three small things every day to keep your network warm. And I, till today, it's now 12 years later, I still do the three things every single day. And those three things have snowballed into just what look is my entire personal brand and network today. So it's just been three small things that I've done that haven't felt overwhelming, haven't felt like a huge reach or ask. But when I look back, you can connect the dots and think about, oh my goodness, like that one small thing that I did for the day led to becoming a commentator on BNN or that one small thing you did that day led to teaching at U of T or, you know, launching your company or whatever milestones. It all came from like one small thing that you did that day. You mentioned Aaron's mom. And I said to Al, I came in one day and I said, I just realized today that we're successful as podcasters. And he said, why? And I, and I said to him, I said, Aaron's mom just reached out and said, what a good job we did with the show. I said, we've made it. I said, Aaron's when the, when the guest moms start, and we've had it happen twice now, when the guest moms reach out, we know, yes, we've done it right. <laughs> and, and not just any guest mom, like Shelly is a very, very powerful, incredible executive at Nortel. So she is not someone that would give that piece of feedback if she didn't truly believe that the content was well delivered and well executed. So that's high praise coming from Shelly. Well, that's good to know. And we, uh, we certainly appreciated it. <laughs> and as an aside, I think uh, Fatima's three steps there. I think we just found our first little uh, animated video clip. You didn't, you actually didn't tell her about that, but, uh, Yes, we'll fill you in on that after. <laughs> You're going to see yourself as an avatar, so folks can look forward to that. Amazing. Can't wait. <laughs> <laughs> Tell us a little bit about, and I'm sure if you're like any entrepreneur, you have a number of ideas always going through your head. How do you know when you've got a good one versus, you know what, maybe that one just won't work out? 
cash flow is king spoken like a true salesperson. You need to find product market fit. And the best way to know if you have product market fit is revenue. So actually, this is an interesting story about Quill. We actually launched right before the pandemic. So in March, we're nearing up our one year anniversary. And we had an interesting rocky start because our first we were in conversations with investors and all the way at term sheets. So we're ready to close our pre-seed round. And simultaneously to that, our conference in LA was supposed to be on June 24th. So our investment combined with our conference was supposed to be our two-year runway. Well, of course, the pandemic happened. The first thing that happened was that investors pulled out because everyone, of course, had been impacted by the pandemic. And the second thing that happened is that we realized that we had to push our conference because of the state of California. And so we were in a position where we had maybe a month's worth of runway left. And we were like, okay, well, we launched this company and we're now soon after going to have to shut down. And so funnily enough, I decided to sort of reimagine our business in the short term and pivot. And we launched the full service production team. I'm like, well, if I know how to do anything, it's run an agency. I've done it before. I can do it again. I have the relationships and we know how to launch podcasts. So why not help brands create really great podcasts. And it ended up being such a lucrative business arm that not only exponentially blew up, but those same investors came back a few months later to invest at a higher valuation. And we actually declined and said, we don't need the money. So we aren't going to be raising the capital. And so whenever it comes to a viable business idea, I always say be cash flow from day one, if you can, and have your service side of the business fund your product side, so that even while you're learning in the trenches with your customers, you are cash flow positive. And that is essentially my mantra. Some people might disagree. I know there's that whole philosophy that you uh, need to invest to grow, which is the whole we work mindset where you know, you can have $0 on paper, but be worth a billion dollars. But I'm old school and I'm a salesperson. So for me, it's dollars in the bank and cash flow profitability. Well, now you're talking Al's language. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, we've had many conversations lately around that very topic. (laughs) Yeah. And you know what? There's something for everyone. And I think for companies like Willful, for example, it absolutely makes sense to raise capital and accelerate growth because, you know, there's obviously it's a tech product that needs to go very quickly and they have a clear plan for it. But I would say there are a lot of businesses and there's almost this facade now that you can't be successful without raising. And like the profiling is always done of the companies that raise capital. But the stories that I want to hear are the companies that manage to bootstrap from day one. Those are the true success stories, in my opinion, because those companies have been cash flow positive from day one. Absolutely. That's very cool. I'm going to use myself as an example. We launched in 2005. And I I said this on a previous episode, and we were chatting with a business owner. I've had friends that look at me and say, wow, you're so lucky you own your own business. And, you know, I kind of do that sigh and roll the eyes. And I think you'd understand this as well. Things don't always go smoothly right? But you learn to overcome or you don't succeed, really. Can you maybe share with us a time you overcame failure or a challenge in the business world and and moved on from that and maybe even learned a lesson from it? Yeah. I saw this meme recently on Instagram and it was circulated on TikTok where it was like these bunch of individuals and each square was like, this is the life of an entrepreneur. It's like every day is crap. Oh crap. Oh crap. Oh crap. And then one day it's a hell yeah. And then it's an oh crap. Oh crap. I saw that. Yeah. That's it. That's that's exactly it. That is basically the poster of what an entrepreneur life day to day looks like. And it's, I would argue way more bad days than there are good days, but then you live for those milestones or the client gives you feedback or the very small things that can happen. You're like, oh, I feel really good and I love my job. But most days you're putting out fires and you're a problem solver. And 
And so I, I would arguably say it is the least glamorous job and the most thankless job. And it's funny because back in the day when I was a naive employee, I used to say, I want to be an entrepreneur because I want to be my own boss and I don't want to be accountable to anyone else. And now I realize that couldn't be further from the truth. You're accountable <laughs> to everyone, your employees, your customers, your your team, your stakeholders, your advisors. And that bar is just set so much higher in terms of accountability. And you're definitely not your own boss. So that was the greatest lesson that I have learned in the past year of this new journey or experience that I'm going through. And in terms of your question around what was was a time where we were supposedly able to bounce back. I would say this year is a prime example of that. I mean, we had investors pull out. We had a conference that was pushed from June to October, October to March, and now it's been pushed to next year. And we had to not only launch an entire new umbrella of our company, and not only did we do that, we came out swinging. And We've now developed our our second product and we have a team of 10 people. We acquired a production team this year. So what started off was going to be a very grim year ended up, you know, being a really solid year as we close out our, our first year. I love hearing that. And it's such a time in our history where, and especially in the beginning, and I would say there's still a bit of it now, it's very doom and gloom. Uh, Things aren't working. We're never going back to normal. I love hearing the stories of people succeeding. And that's why this series, Success Leaves Clues. And and I think it's so important for people like yourself to get this message out to other entrepreneurs, because let's face it, we all know people who are sitting back right now thinking, well, I've got an idea, but I'm afraid. Mm-hmm. You know, so I think it's good to see other examples of people have said, you know what, I'm going to take that leap of faith. I'm going to work my tail off to get there. And maybe I'll face some obstacles, but other people have done it. Other people have faced these obstacles. Other people have moved beyond them. And other people have created opportunities out there that, that weren't there before. So I think mm-hmm. I think you have such a cool story to share. I mean, I think it's also important to understand that despite it being a successful year for us, it isn't easy and it's still so difficult and challenging. And I wish we talked about those challenges more. You know, one of my favorite, two of my favorite podcasts, uh, one of them is How I Built This is a show about successful companies and they're now successful, but they focus on these podcast episodes. They focus on all of the challenges and pitfalls and experiences that they went through to iterate their business to a point of success. And I think the learning lesson here is that there are so many failures and you just have to fail fast and iterate. And that is what being a successful entrepreneur is getting comfortable with that discomfort of knowing that it's not going to be an easy ride. And while I say we had a good year, this has been a terrible week. And, you know, I can't wait for the weekend to disconnect a little bit and start the next week. And it's probably going to be a new set of challenges and your problems never look the same. But eventually you'll be able to connect the dots looking backwards. Well, at least your week's ending on a high note. <laughs> yes, yes, that's true. <laughs> With us. That's true. Yes, I'm excited to tune into some of your other episodes. I was looking at your guest list. It's quite a roster. So before I jump into my next question for you, I want to build on what both of you said. In your last answer, you used the word naive. And I think very often that's actually an advantage if you're going down the path of becoming an entrepreneur and being your own business. If you knew at the beginning what you knew at the end, you probably never would have gone into business because some of that naivety uh, is actually a benefit because... (laughs) Yeah, it's so true. Yeah, it's a real, real humbling experience. That's for sure. 100%. So this is a question we very often finish off with with a number of our guests. Looking back and knowing what you know now, what advice would you give to any up and coming entrepreneurs? You know, one little tip, one little key thing. 
Well, you can't see it right now, but there's like a little sign like on the other side of the screen um, that I have on my desk wall, which is a reminder to me every day. And it says, if it's not happening in front of me, stop thinking about it. I actually wrote that out myself. And, and what that means to me is that it's so important to disconnect from your business and have some form of work-life balance and just a place that you can go to that isn't your work. And I've actually found that this year, taking that time and carving it out for myself that's not associated with work has made me a better leader and made me a better CEO. I've operated my entire life from this place of the Gary Vee mentality of hustle 24-7, life is a race, you have to get there faster, fast, faster, faster. And, and you know, I think because of icons like that who we've idolized our entire life, we think that we can't strive for work-life balance or shouldn't at least even be trying. And this year, I think the pandemic really helped me to slow down a little bit. And we still came out swinging at the end of the year. So I think it was a learning lesson that you can have work-life balance, sleep your eight hours, work out, eat well, have a relationship with your friends, family, partner, and still have a successful company. And that is my learning lesson this year. And I wish I had, my younger self had known this, where it's, if it's not happening in front of you, don't constantly be thinking about it and don't go home with it. So I've got two comments on that. Compared to us, you still are your younger self. So just, <laughs> <laughs> just, just I had to say that. And then um, I do think that's a great piece of advice. And we've heard that with some of our other guests we've had on. And that has been an underlying theme. It is interesting, you know, that we, we have been told over and over again, you know, work hard, nose to the grindstone. But that message more and more about work-life balance is definitely, definitely coming through. I don't know if you can see this on my screen here, but it says the human being journal. And this is a journal that I purchased about six months ago. It really helped me to identify that career was a burner in my life that I was really prioritizing, but there's so many other burners that make you a well-rounded person and that constitutes as a successful life that I had been neglecting. And so this journal, along with COVID and slowing down, has made me realize that you're actually a better performer and CEO when you are focusing on all the burners in your life, creativity, health, passion, relationships. Actually, you should have the founders and CEO of this journal, which is blowing up. They were just featured by Oprah and Jessica Alba on this podcast. I think they have an incredible COVID story to share. Oh, would love it if you can introduce us. That'd be Absolutely. fantastic. Yes, I am just going to make a note here. Perfect. I will do that. You're so right, though, because again, being at home and being remote a lot of the time, I was talking to Al about this. It's been so easy to blur the line between work and home life. So one of the things I did in my calendar was I blocked off. I'm good. I'm an early riser. So I'm on my computer at 7.30. By 3.30, I'm done. Now, it's not, I'm not done for the day, but I'm done in terms of my productivity. So down to the basement I go for my hour workout, quick shower, and then I can get in another hour of work. And it's, it's important to schedule those things in, in because, again, I can work myself to death and it's not going to help grow the company. It's not going to totally. make me a better leader for the company. Whereas if I schedule that time and I come back to work, I'm just going to be that more productive. Let's face it. I'm going to be a much happier person as well. Less stress in my life, which when we look at the leaders that we want to be for our employees, that's the kind of role model that I want to be. Absolutely. You've said it perfectly. It's funny. Last week, I closed the agency for a day. Um, I called it the mental health day. And we were telling our clients, the traditional banks were like, what's a mental health day? And I was like, it just means that we are working hard and we want to take a day to disconnect. And it was such a foreign concept. But I've 
instantly noticed that when everyone was back in the office on Monday after an extra long weekend, we're just so much more alert. We Our productivity was so much better. Our creative ideas were so much better and our clients were so much happier with, with our work. And so I think the new millennial way of running a business, but you are still a millennial in my books. <laughs> that makes me feel better on a Friday. Maybe I'll look the part. I don't know. <laughs> this is only well, audio. Being a millennial for me is now less about age and more about a mindset. Oh, I like that. I do like that. Well, there is a reason why we wanted to have you on the show. You and I connected offline, of course, with an introduction from Aaron. And of course, I take any introduction from Aaron very seriously. And uh, I'm just so thrilled that we got to meet Fatima because I love this conversation. Thank you for joining us and thank you for sharing your story. What's the best way for people to reach out if they have questions about yourself or what you're doing at Quill? Yeah, I mean, I'm pretty accessible across all the channels, LinkedIn, Instagram, Twitter, TikTok. Just Google me, you'll find me. My email is fatimaquillet.io and our website is quillet.io. So you can pretty much reach me anywhere if you want to. You're definitely going to be able to. Awesome. Well, that does it for today's episode, folks. As always, man, I love this conversation. <laughs> I hope you did too. If you have any questions for Al or myself, please feel free to give us a call or by joining the conversation on LinkedIn or Clubhouse because we're on there now too. So success leaves clues, my friends. And remember, it all starts with one. Mm-hmm.